So, hello everybody and welcome to this uh, new podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Today we're dealing with a, an important problem on, on multiple aspects as a public health professional and also for public health in general. The question of pronouns and also of the surveillance of information about uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. These are difficult questions, even for people who want to do things well, you know. Uh, understanding why it is important to use the right pronoun for the right person and uh, what difference it makes is a very important part of our, I would say, training and, and education as public health uh, person. And we published, uh, I'm going to, to show this on my screen, we, we published a paper by Francisco Perales, Cristina Blasa, and Nikki. Elkin uh, that shows that actually uh, inclusive uh, language uh, really improves the, the well-being of uh, uh, people who are directly concerned by it. And they say our results provide, provide robust evidence indicating that efforts to foster inclusive language at work can yield substantial positive effect on trans people's feelings of belonging and inclusion, thereby contributing to their overall socioeconomic integration. So we've published this and uh, we invited uh, an editorial that uh, Lori Ross, who is here, I'm going to ask her to introduce herself in a second, and wrote this fantastical title that we love, that the pronouns are a public health issue. And actually, we decided to make it uh, the theme of this, uh, this podcast. And also, we invited Sean Cahill, who has written uh, several times in the journal about the issue of uh, recording information on sexual and gender minority, especially, you know, on sexual orientation and uh, uh, gender identification. This was a 2020 editorial. So these are our guests today, and I'm going to ask Lori, please introduce yourself. Sure, thank you for having me. So my name is Lori Ross and I'm an associate professor in the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Uh, and a major focus in my program of research is on sexual and gender minority people's health and well-being, as well as our community's access to services and support. Thank you, Lori. Sean. Hi, uh, I'm Sean Cahill. I'm Director of Health Policy Research at the Fenway Institute in Boston. I'm also Affiliate Associate Clinical Professor at the Bouvet College of Health Sciences at Northeastern University and Adjunct Assistant Professor at Boston University School of Public Health. Thank you. So I think we should start with some uh, clarification, you know, some explanation about uh, the, the vocabulary that uh, we, we are using. So the, the term that um, Perales and colleagues used was trans-inclusive language. Um, we, in our paper, also used the term trans-affirming language. And really, both terms refer to any language that implies gender. So pronouns are a big one, uh, which, which we'll talk about more. Um, but in addition to pronouns, things like honorifics, so Mr., Ms., Mix, MX, um, 
These are all terms that imply gender. Also included with the umbrella of trans-inclusive or trans-affirming language would be uh, the choice to use gender-neutral language rather than gendered language. So a simple example, my kid's teacher at school, instead of referring to the students as boys and girls, refers to them as friends. So that's also an example of trans-inclusive or trans-affirming language. All right, trans-inclusive language. So, Sean, do, do you want to add something to that? or So, pronouns are really important because they're an important element of gender-affirming care more broadly. They send a message if you understand how to use pronouns that people use and do it appropriately. It sends a message that you're clinically competent and able to provide responsive care to transgender patients. And if you misgender transgender patients, often that causes them to not return to seek healthcare. So, you know, it's a major barrier to access and care for transgender people. The other thing that's really important is to use the names that transgender people use. So sometimes the name that a person uses and the pronouns may not match what's on the insurance. So it's important to structure your electronic health record so that you can um, have both sets of information, um, the insurance information that you need to get reimbursed, but also the information you need to provide gender affirming care. And it's important for transgender patients, but you know, even for other patients, a lot of times people might use a middle name, they might use a nickname, they might not like their given name. And so it's, it's actually important for a broader set of patients beyond transgender patients. Thank you. And so uh, I think using he, she, is her is not too complicated. And I mean, we can understand when to use them and understand that it's a way of respecting the person that uh, we are talking to. It, it's more difficult to understand when people want to use the pronoun they or them. Can, can you explain, Laurie and Sean, you know, what does this mean and how does a person relate to those pronouns? Because I think that understanding, you know, the logic and, and how people perceive it will help us using that. Sure. So they, them pronouns are being used increasingly in, in terms of what, what I'm seeing in my work by folks who don't identify with a binary gender system. So don't identify as a man or a woman. And so, for example, that would include people who identify as non-binary or genderqueer, among other gender identities. And so for uh, many of these folks, gendered pronouns like he, him, she, her don't align with their gender. Uh, and so they are opting to use they, them as, as uh, pronouns that res respect and reflect non-binary gender identification. Uh, they, them aren't the only pronouns um, that, that can be used in that way. So, for example, Z, Zem is another form of, of non-binary pronouns. Um, but they, them... Yeah, Gloria, repeat, just repeat which one? Sure. Uh, so there are many, but another that's used um, is Zay and Zem. So that, that can be spelled either with a Z or with an X. Um, so really, any uh, there's a wide variety of pronouns that people are opting to use that get away from uh, needing to identify gender as part of the pronoun. Okay. And Sean, is this your perspective too? Yeah, I agree with everything Laurie said. And I would just add that this is an increasingly common form of identity. So um, we had a couple of national surveys of transgender people done in the U.S. One was done in 20, 2011 and one was done in 2015. Um, so the most recent survey is called the U.S. Transgender Survey, and 
they got about 28,000 transgender people from around the country to uh, fill out the survey. Uh, in the 2011 survey, about 3% of people said that they were non-binary in identity. And in 2015, it was closer to 30%. So there was this tenfold increase in the percentage of people who identify as non-binary. That definitely tracks what we're seeing at Family Health, where the Family Institute is located, where we have about 4,500 transgender and gender non-binary patients. It's a much more common identity now than even five or 10 years ago. And if I can maybe pick up on your your point or maybe question around the use of, of the, the pronoun they, them to refer to a single person, because I think that's a really important point because that's an argument that I hear a lot against using they, them pronouns. And I want to refer here to some really great work by Dr. Lee Ayrton, who's at Queen's University. Dr. Ayrton developed the No Big Deal campaign, which is to educate folks about appropriate use of pronouns. Um, and so in that campaign, Dr. Ayrton points out that the use of plural pronouns to refer to a singular person is not new at all, but has been used at different times in the English language across history. So for example, the pronoun ye in Old and Middle English is a plural pronoun that was used to refer to a singular person. So really language with respect to pronouns and everything else is always evolving. This is an evolution in our language. And so really I think the important question is not so much about whether it's grammatically correct, but more about why people have such resistance to using these non-binary pronouns. I think that's really the important issue. But I, I want to say that uh, it's not from a, a perspective of people that are opposed to it. I think most of the people in public health, most of the people I know, they, they want to be respectful and they want to use them correctly. And the syntax issue is not so important. I mean, what's, what's really important is to understanding what relationship we create with someone. And this discussion ha is very helpful in this uh, and I think even, you know, just to reflect back what, what Sean said a minute ago, it's so significant for folks to even be asked about pronouns because the act of asking what pronoun someone uses immediately disrupts the assumption that we can tell someone's gender by looking at them, right? So just asking the question, what pronouns should I use when I'm referring to you, opens up that space to say, okay, we understand that, that gender can be complex and that by looking at you, I can't know how you identify. Uh, absolutely. But would you agree that if you use they, them for a single person, the question is how does that person, you know, understand it? They don't want to use a, a binary pronoun like he or she. That, that's really all that's happening. And I would say, you know, it, it can be um, a new thing for people. It can be challenging. I say it, it gets easier with practice. Um, and if you are a provider, you have non-binary patients, most likely. Um, and, uh, you know, another thing you can do is use the person's name, you know, but I think over time, as opposed to using a pronoun, you can use the proper name. But um, over time, it does get easier. And, um, you know, it's like Laurie said, it's not, it's just not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. You know, if, it, if it's important for the patient, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A, fr a patient, a friend, a colleague, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, a coworker, right? Everybody. And, and I think this discussion is very useful for me, and I know it's going to be very useful for many, many people. So, so the, uh, how do we do uh, to include, you know, the correct pronouns in, 
in practice, uh, you know, we talked a lot about clinical relationship. So can you give us uh, more of your experience about that? How, how do, do we, can we make this become more routine? Well, what we do at Family Health is we have a color coding system for pronouns and we, we have a box that's really big relative to the other content on the screen in the electronic health record. So if somebody uses she, her pronouns, it says she, and it's a big box. And the word she is in big type, much bigger, maybe like 48 point or 60 point compared to, you know, maybe 12 point for the other type. And it's color coded. And I think it's, it's like lavender for she, and it's green for he, and it's uh, yellow for they, something like that. And that really helps the, cl the clinical staff to, you know, immediately see the pronouns with the patient to be able to, to use the appropriate pronouns. We found that that's very helpful. So Sean, the first thing is that that's part of your admission questionnaire then. I mean, yes. you, you must record it's part that. of the registration form. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and name used as well. And we say, you know, name used, even if it doesn't match what's on your insurance. And Lori, which is your experience in terms of what is your experience? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with exactly what Sean said. I think the important thing is that there's a space for folks to uh, self-identify during an intake or registration process, the pronouns that they use, the name that they use, as well as their gender. So I think this is something that's important, obviously, in the clinical setting, as Sean's talking about. It's also important from a research perspective when, when we are thinking about how to collect data on gender, gender identity, and sexual orientation. So is this meeting any type of obstacles? Because, I mean, we know and you describe in, in your articles that there is discrimination, there is stigma. I mean, when people know the sexual orientation, gender identity of a patient, they may modify their, their behavior as healthcare. So how do we combine that? It seems that there is on one side a risk of clarity. On the, the other side, there is a benefit. Is this correct? or? I mean, I would argue that the benefits far outweigh the risks and that folks uh, make their own decisions about when and where and how it's safe to make disclosures. I think that we've seen plenty of examples over time of how the suppression of data is a really effective way to not have to attend to issues of inequity. So data is really essential for us to be able to understand what inequities exist and look at how we need to address them. So I think that making the opportunity to disclose available to people is essential. And then we leave it in the hands of the people who are making those disclosures to, to decide when it's safe to do that. Yeah. You know, discrimination in society is a huge issue for transgender people. And discrimination in healthcare is one form of social discrimination that people experience. It's important to note that in the United States, we have federal regulations that prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity. The regulation implementing Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act explicitly prohibits uh, discrimination on the basis of gender identity, including non-binary people and intersex people. And it also provides protections against anti-gay, lesbian, and bisexual discrimination. And then the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services put out a clarifying regulation in May of 2021 stating that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity is prohibited by federal law because it's a form of sex discrimination, as our Supreme Court ruled in June of 2020. So that's not to say that just because it's prohibited by federal law, of course, it still happens. We know that. 
So it's really important that health care providers train their staff in you know, the fact that it is prohibited by federal law, but also understand what it means in practice. You know, what it means is that you provide equitable care, non-discriminatory care, but also affirming care. And that will allow people to get the care they need and then get screened for some of the conditions that we see at higher rates in transgender populations, like cardiovascular health issues, um, some of the risk behaviors like tobacco use and substance use. But we also know one last point that from a growing body of research that discrimination is a correlate of higher rates of tobacco and substance use. So if we wanna reduce those health risk behaviors, we wanna to try to address and reduce discrimination in society more broadly. Yeah, if I understand both of you, uh, more clarity uh, will allow to uh, develop you know, information campaign and training, et cetera, and reduce on, on the long-term uh, discrimination and, and stigma. Because I understand they're forbidden, but that doesn't mean they don't exist in practice. And that doesn't mean that some people may not be very eager to actually reveal their true identity because of those risks. But uh, what you're saying is that it's actually a way of moving in the right direction to do that. And it's just really important for uh, the proper care that people need. You know, knowing what somebody's assigned sex at birth is, is very important to inform preventive screenings for clinical decision support. It's important to have an anatomical inventory to understand the kinds of screenings people need. And it's also helpful for population health management, you know, so that, so for example, we can look at our transgender male population and see, are they getting pap tests? Are they getting other kinds of cancer screenings that they need at the same rate as other people who have a cervix? And if not, um, what do we do to try to improve those screening rates? Yeah. And just looping back to something that Sean mentioned earlier, too, it's also just really important for the dignity of the person receiving care, right, to be referred to in ways that respect and affirm their gender. And so we do have evidence showing that many trans and gender diverse people avoid healthcare settings because of experiences of or anticipated experiences of discrimination. So that's really critical, too, to think about how we create spaces where people feel that they're going to be able to receive care safely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'd like to move now, now the discussion, now that we saw, you know, the occupational level and, and, and the interpersonal, you know, level to the public health surveillance level, you know, because it's, it's a real issue to try to monitor uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. I, I remember in 2016, Oh, 17, uh, immediately after the, the former administration came uh, into uh, the government, they, they tried to remove some, uh, do, do you say SOGI, uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a, so, some SOGI information? Uh, what's the situation today? How well is SOGI uh, being recorded for a national survey? And what do we learn from this? Yeah, most federally funded surveys in the U.S., uh, population-based health surveys, are not asking uh, gender identity or transgender status, unfortunately. So we'd really like to see more of them do that. Uh, for example, the National Health Interview Survey, it added sexual orientation questions a while ago, but not still hasn't added gender identity questions. But really, one of our biggest surveys, the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, that does ask sexual orientation and gender identity and so, um, and it's a huge number of respondents every year. It's around 450,000 respondents, which is really great. 
and, mo and, and a majority of states now are asking the SOGI questions, the SOGI module. Unfortunately, it's an optional module. So states might ask it one year, and then like, for example, if a new public health issue arises like COVID-19, they might take the question off to make room for a question about COVID-19 testing or vaccination. So what we'd like the um, CDC to do, the Centers for Disease Control, is add the SOGI questions onto the core survey of BRFSS so that we're asking it consistently year after year in all 48 states that do the BRFSS survey. And that would allow us to not only talk about transgender people, but it asks, it allows people to identify as transgender male, transgender female, and gender non-conforming, which is kind of a different way of saying non-binary. And, and because it's such a big N, over time, if you pull multiple years together, you can start to look at racial ethnic differences, age cohort differences, and so on. And so why and I'm, yeah, please, please. Sorry, I was just gonna say, I'm speaking from the Canadian context where things are a little bit different. We have had sexual orientation included in our major um, population level health survey uh, for quite some time now, but we've only recently added a question on gender identity. So those data are, are just, beginning to uh, come available, but that's after many, many years of advocacy and it, it's still not on all surveys as well. So we still have a ways to go. But just to emphasize again, it's so important, like Sean is saying, we, we need to be able to ask these questions to really be able to, to understand where the inequities are and understand that from an intersectional lens as well. Knowing, for example, that uh, trans women of color face uh, enormous rates of discrimination and violence that are associated with, with obviously, health outcomes. Um, so we need to be able to understand, you know, both the big picture for trans and gender diverse people, but also uh, the finer details of that picture as well. So having not only the right questions, but also sufficient number of respondents is really essential to be able to do that kind of work. No, absolutely. I mean, when, when the, the previous administration had tried to remove this question from a, a survey for elderly people receiving, you know, public support, the journal reacted, you know, very strongly. And there were 12,000 reactions on the public uh, discussion. And, and I think it's one of the rare situations in which the previous administration backed down and put back the the soji. But so the question is, Laurie, what, what's, how did you do it in Canada? How did you get, you know, the, the, the government to actually introduce those questions? And so that could be useful for us here. Well, I mean, first of all, it wasn't me personally. <laughs> there were many scholars and uh, advocates and activists involved in that um, advocacy over the years. But really, I think it, it, it's just a process of educating and, uh, you know, working with, with partners in, in government, in our case in Statistics Canada, to really understand both why those questions are needed, but also how to ask them in the most appropriate way. I think it's really interesting that that um, people sometimes have resistance to asking um, soji related questions because they feel like people will be offended or not not want to answer the question. But in fact, in population level surveys, people are far more likely to skip answering a question about household income than they are about sexual orientation or gender identity. So it's really not, I guess, as sensitive maybe to the to the general public as people assume that it will be. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, Sean, this is your, your data, no? your experience, that uh, actually people respond to those questions when they are. Yeah, yeah, we've done research that shows that, you know, people are willing to answer the questions, 
the a vast majority of people, not just LGBTQ people, but you know, straight cisgender people, older people, uh, people of color, um, all, all kinds of people are willing to answer these questions, understand the importance of a provider knowing this about their patient. There was a study done at Johns Hopkins University and Brigham and Women's Hospital in the emergency departments where they were asking SOGI questions and most of the providers were worried that the patients would be offended, but only, it turned out like something like 78% of the providers were worried about asking the questions, but only about 10% of the patients said that they were offended by being asked. So the vast majority of patients really didn't have a problem. I'll just mention two other areas where it's really important to collect these data. In clinical settings, in the health center network in the U.S., we serve about 30 million patients, perhaps 20 million of them adults. And we've been reporting to the federal government since 2017 on the sexual orientation and gender identity of our adult patients. So we have four or five years now of data. And that's really important data because it's clinical, there's health outcomes data and so on. But the other area is COVID-19. And so the first paper that you uh, showed that I co-authored was asking the federal government and state governments to ask SOGI questions, sexual orientation and gender identity in COVID-19 testing, and also to try to collect the data to look at care outcomes and vaccination uptake. And we're still waiting for action from the federal government. You know, we, we have people in important positions now who are, who are sympathetic, who understand the importance of SOGI data, but we still have not seen action. So the CDC COVID-19 case report form still doesn't ask SOGI. Uh, it's just a really missed opportunity to understand how the pandemic is affecting LGBT people. Yeah, yeah but Sean, I mean, why, what's the obstacle? Why, why don't we do it? I know the, the previous, I mean, under the Obama administration, SOGI questions were developed, tested. I mean, it's not that we are lacking, you know, good questions, uh, validated questions to do it. So why doesn't CDC do it? I don't understand. You know, there, there was a paper just published in MMWR that um, where they did collect vaccination data um, and they compared LGBT respondents to straight cisgender respondents. And about maybe seven or eight of the authors are on the CDC COVID-19 emergency response team. And they said it was important to systematically collect SOGI data in surveillance. So, I mean, there's support within the CDC, but it just hasn't happened yet. I think that government moves very slowly, but I'm hoping that they'll do something soon. I really am because the science is there. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think too, I mean, in the Canadian context, and I assume in the U.S. as well, for these, you know, population level data collection measures, there's usually such priority placed on, um, you know, figuring out which things are the most critical to ask because there's, you know, time is money, right? And so the more questions we ask, the longer it takes, the more it costs to collect and work with those data. So I think a piece for us as researchers is really doing the kind of advocacy that Sean's talking about in terms of, uh, you know, helping to uh, helping folks to understand why these questions are as important as some of the other questions that are routinely asked. And I think that, uh, you know, some of the work that you're talking about, Sean, really illustrates that, uh, that there are disparities associated with sexual orientation and gender identity for basically every outcome or health behavior we look at. Um, and so we really need these data to understand those disparities in order to figure out how best to intervene. Absolutely, absolutely, and and as as we all know, if you if there is no surveillance data, if the questions are not asked, people don't exist really, and uh, and so it's very very important. The journal has been trying to report as much as possible the data related to uh, 
uh, LGBTQ population and health. But during all the COVID-19 pandemic, there were no good data. I mean, that was a real problem. And when you have convenient sample, you just can't publish that because we don't know what's the reality underneath. So hopefully for the next pandemic, we'll be ready. No, I'm just kidding. I, I think uh, we need to be ready immediately. So Lori, Sean, Thank you very much. That was a very interesting and uh, educational discussion, even for me. And thank you for your great work and for your contribution to the journal. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.